0: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
1: This week on Meetin and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers.
2: Beer before wine,
3: you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer.
1: To the novel recipes developed by an Indian-American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Takayuki Suda, or Gaku, has been researching Japanese Americans across generations and the extent to which they remain connected to their ethnic heritage. Welcome to the show, Gaku.
3: Thank you very much, Carl. It's good to be on your podcast.
2: Sure. So let's first talk about you and your own history um, as a Japanese American in America. Where are you living now?
3: So I'm currently in Scottsdale, Arizona, right north of Phoenix.
2: And what has brought you here?
3: So, I'm a professor of anthropology at Arizona State University, so I moved out here from um, UC. San Diego 14 years ago, so that's how I ended up in the middle of the Sonoran Desert here in Arizona.
2: Mm-hmm. And before San Diego, did you grow up in California, or did your parents immigrate?
3: So my father um, immigrated to the United States in the late 1960s. In fact, I believe. He was one of the first Japanese immigrants to immigrate here after World War II because, um, as you may know, the U.S. government banned Asian immigration or most Asian immigration until 1965. And so he came to the United States as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. So I was actually born, on, uh, born and raised on the campus of the University of Chicago. For, so I'm actually a Midwesterner. <laughs>
2: And so, can you actually give a brief history as to the migration of Japanese to America? Like you mentioned, there was the um, the flux post World War II. But can you give right. a bit more context?
3: So, Japanese immigration to the United States has a very long history. Um, Japanese Americans are one of the uh, oldest Asian American um, groups here in the United States, and so. Their immigration, the immigration of Japanese to the United States started in the 1880s. And initially most of that went to Hawaii and these were um, Japanese farmers who were suffering in the rural Japanese countryside and um, immigrated to Hawaii to work as plantation uh, workers. And then after that uh, there started to be immigration from Japan to the mainland United States. and. Um, That continued in significant numbers until 1924. That's when the U.S. government passed the uh, Immigration Act of 1924, which banned Asian immigration to the United States. So there was actually a um, significant law in Japanese immigration from 1924 until 1965, when um, the hart Sutter Act was passed here in the United States, which allowed Asians to uh, immigrate here both as um, students, employees, and through family reunification. So um, there's a there was a significant amount of Japanese immigration to the United States before 1924, and most. Um, japanese americans today are descendants of those earlier japanese immigrants so most of these japanese americans are third and fourth generation here in the united states and then as I just mentioned there was a post-war immigration of japanese not as large because japan had become a prosperous country so there wasn't that much of an economic incentive to immigrate to the united states anymore and the descendants of those, um, the, the post-war 1965 uh, Japanese immigrants are, 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 are called Shin-nite, that is the new second generation, so I'm actually part of that generation.
2: Mm-hmm. I actually want to get back to the Exclusion Act. How did yes. immigration differ before the Act and after? And um, What was the, I guess, what was the appeal of immigrating to a place that was previously exclusionary?
3: Well, so um, before 1924, most of the um, immigration of Japanese was due to economic reasons. So um, Japan was modernizing, but there were significant economic disparities in Japan. I mean, the cities were starting to do quite well and become modernized in Japan, but the rural areas in Japan were really left behind. So there were a lot of poor... um, rural farmers um, suffering in Japan at that time, and um, the United States, of course, um, there was a decline in uh, white European immigration, and there was, of course, still a great need for immigrant labor, especially to work in American agriculture, so... So the the Japanese government and the U.S. government arranged the uh, immigration of Japanese to the United States, and so that ended in 1924. So after um, 1965, um, so that was, you know, World War II had ended, Um, Japan um, was becoming a highly developed first-world nation, relationships between Japan and the United States had already improved considerably. And American um, images um, toward Japanese in Japan had um, become much more favorable. Discrimination toward Japanese Americans in the United States had um, started to subside uh, after World War II. So the, um, the Japanese who immigrated after 1965 did not experience as much prejudice and discrimination as the um Japanese who immigrated before 1924. And so most of these Japanese were um, generally highly educated professionals and business people, um, both people who, like my father, came as um, students to America. There were others who came as independent professionals. And then, uh, especially in the 1980s, um, because of the booming Japanese economy and Japanese multinational firms spreading across the world. You started to get Japanese business people uh, immigrating here with their families, mainly for temporary um, corporate stays in the U.S. Working for Japanese uh, corporations in the U.S.
2: Mm-hmm. It seems like there is this really quick and happy turnaround. But where, um, mm-hmm. where in this timeline do the um, enforced incarcerations happen, yes. and how come those aren't talked about as much?
3: Well, that's a big part of Japanese American history. There's been a ton of scholarly research done on the um, internment of Japanese-Americans during uh, World War II. In fact, uh, most of the research, especially historical research done on Japanese-Americans is about the internment. And so, um, as I think most Americans know by now, I know when I was growing up this wasn't taught actively in American schools, but I talk to my young students at Arizona State University now, and most of them are taught this um, very dark moment in American history when um, the American government incarcerated basically almost all of the Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans uh, living here in the United States after um, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor because they were seen as a national security threat. There was, of course, no evidence that Um, of treasonous activity among Japanese immigrants or Japanese Americans, but there was a lot of mass hysteria um, in the United States after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. So this unilateral decision was made by the Roosevelt um, administration. And it's very important to um, remember that two-thirds of the... um, Japanese um, and Japanese-Americans who were actually interned in concentration camps during World War II in the United States were actually American citizens. These were second-generation U.S.-born Japanese-Americans uh, who were uh, being interned. And like I just said, two-thirds of the Japanese population that was interned was actually um, American citizens. Mm-hmm. So we were adopting up Americans.
2: Yeah, and these, then— On the flip side of that is then the forced assimilation after that. And then I was wondering if you could see any ties between um, the assimilation efforts and the reason why there are larger Japanese communities in certain pockets of America today.
3: So um, after World War II, the um, American government, so after the internment camps were closed and the Japanese Americans were freed, Um, At the end of the war, the American government actually was worried, (laughs) ironically, um, that if a lot of these Japanese Americans returned to California, where they had uh, been living before World War II, that they would face severe prejudice and discrimination and hate crimes and so on. Because most of the Japanese Americans had been living in California, and that's where the backlash against um, Japanese Americans was by far the worst in the United States. And so the Japanese-Americans, after the internment experience, were encouraged to not return to California. Of course, a lot of them did, but others decided to um, scatter across the United States. So a good number of them um, migrated to the, migrated internally to the Midwest. And so you have, you know, Japanese-American communities and places like Chicago, where I was born and raised, and then um, you had Japanese-Americans moving to the East Coast, and so you have Japanese-American communities, a history of that on the East Coast um, as well. And so um, the uh, U.S.-born second-generation Japanese-Americans who were um, incarcerated in these internment camps um, after World War II, they realized that it was quite unfortunate that, you know, despite being American citizens, they had been locked up simply because they're Japanese descent. So being Japanese, of course, um, was a huge stigma after World War II. And of course, they continued to face prejudice and discrimination from mainstream Americans. So the message that uh the second generation got is that they had to Americanize and assimilate as quickly as possible and demonstrate their loyalty as Americans. This is why a good number of them actually fought um, against the Germans in Europe during World War II and the 442nd. I mean, um, they, uh, you know, a lot of them died um, trying to demonstrate their loyalty, that they were willing to, to die for their country of America just as much as white Americans fighting the Nazis in, in Europe. So there was a huge push among the second generation to assimilate after World War II and become, you know, loyal Americans. And that, of course, continued to the third and fourth generation. So by the time you get to the third generation, they're completely assimilated, don't speak a word of Japanese. They lost touch with their uh, Japanese cultural heritage and all that.
2: And is this the same across members of the Japanese diaspora across countries, or is this solely in America?
3: This was uh, mainly in the United States and in Canada. Um, I don't know much about the history of Japanese Canadians during World War II, but some of what I've read and heard is that actually the Canadian government treated their um, Japanese descendants, the Japanese Canadians, in some ways worse than the Americans did. So the Japanese Canadians kind of had a similar experience. Um, Now, there are large communities of Japanese descendants in Latin America, especially in Brazil and Peru, but there are smaller groups in countries like Argentina and Paraguay and even Bolivia. Um, And they were also there during World War II. Um, But the um, Japanese descendants in Latin America were not incarcerated in concentration camps. Actually, the U.S. government tried to pressure some of these Latin American nations to um, send um, their Japanese descendants to the United States to be placed in internment camps, and most of the Latin American countries did not do that, with the exception of Peru. And so Peru actually sent, um, i do not it wasn't their entire population, but a segment of their Japanese Peruvian population to the United States to be placed in these internment camps with Japanese-Americans. And so as a result, you have some Japanese Peruvian communities here in the United States who, uh, you know, after they were in World War II, they decided not to go back. Well, a lot of them went back, but some of them decided not to go back to Peru, and they just settled here in the United States. So I believe there's a Japanese Peruvian community somewhere in New Jersey that traces its... um, history to the uh, American uh, uh, internment experience.
2: Wow. Yeah, and so if you were to gather a um, third-generation Japanese American with
3: um,
2: a third-generation Japanese Peruvian into the same room, how might they differ um, in terms of values or, um, yeah, how might they differ?
3: Uh, You mean a third-generation Japanese Peruvian who's been living in the United States?
2: Who's been living in Peru.
3: Oh, who, who's living in Peru? Mm-hmm. Um, While well, they're so, despite being members of the same Japanese diaspora—that um, is, descendants of Japanese who scattered throughout the uh, Americas—Japanese Americans feel quite different from Japanese Latin Americans. And I actually asked about this during my research. And those Japanese Americans who actually met um, in the past. Japanese descendants from Latin America basically said that they couldn't find too many commonalities. I mean, first of all, the language is different. Um, Of course, the Japanese Americans speak English and the Japanese Latin Americans um, speak Spanish or if they're Japanese Brazilians, speak um, Portuguese. And because both of these communities Japanese descendants in the U.S. and in Latin America have been living in completely different countries for generations of, you know, they've assimilated to these separate countries. So Japanese Americans act like Americans and think like Americans and Japanese Peruvians act and think like Peruvians and their worldview is very different. So even when communication is possible, they don't, they find they don't have a lot in common to (laughs) talk about. Mm -hmm. Um... Except the fact that their ancestors came from Japan and that's about it And that's basically what the Japanese Americans told me that they really found these people. It was like just meeting any person from Peru You know, they didn't find the Mm -hmm. ancestral commonalities that they expected because of Generations of assimilation to separate countries
2: Right and then um, to push on this further how might a first generation differ from a third generation? um, Both Japanese Americans living in America
3: So um, the first generation currently in the United States are the immigrants who came after 1965, and um, they are quite um, separated from the older Japanese-American community, like I said, who are third and fourth generation. So the first-generation immigrants, and the first-generation immigrants, they're generally um, more... um, wealthier and and, and, uh, uh, highly educated Japanese who came here for um, student and professional reasons or as as businessmen. So some of them actually do have um, prejudices about these older communities of Japanese Americans who are descended from, um, you know, poor Japanese rural farmers who immigrated here before 1924. And then there are um, differences in culture, of course, the Japanese Um, current first-generation immigrants are culturally Japanese and they speak Japanese much better than English and the Japanese Americans are Americanized and they don't speak Japanese and they live in separate communities. They don't interact much with each other. And so there's really a divide between um, the current ISA, the the first-generation Japanese immigrants, and these um, later-generation Japanese Americans. Again, they don't have a lot in common.
2: Mm-hmm. And so how do collective identities or even, quote-unquote, ethnicities get formed across generations?
3: I think these are very different identities. Um, I think the first-generation Japanese immigrants don't necessarily identify that strongly with the U.S., um, even if they end up settling here. A lot of them are temporary, so they, they're planning to go back to Japan after their degrees or after their um Their um, work in Japanese multinationals here in the U.S., which is usually only, like, several years. They just get transferred here from Japan. Um, And the Japanese-Americans of the third and fourth generation, of course, they identify heavily as Americans, and they um, feel much more loyalty and uh, national identification with um, the United States than they do to Japan. Of course, they continue. They, They are proud of their Japanese um, ancestral heritage, and they continue to say things like, you know, there are parts of me that are um, related to, I I feel the pull of Japanese culture to my ancestors and so on, and some traits that they attribute to their Japanese um, descent, but besides that, they're they're very assimilated, and they identify quite strongly as um, Americans of Japanese descent. So there's definitely, uh, it's, I would never characterize the Japanese, the Japanese-American community is so diverse. I cannot characterize it as having some kind of um, unified identity.
2: Mm-hmm. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. <laughs>
0: an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
1: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santigade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on
3: heritageradionetwork.org.
2: And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We were just talking about how collective identities get formed across generations, um, if at all possible. And so, Gaku, having been in America as long as, if not longer, other immigrants, why are Asian Americans, or specifically Japanese Americans, still constantly having to defend their Americanness?
3: Um, That's a very good question, and it's something I did uh, research on. Um, I think... Most Americans, and when I say Americans, I'm not just talking about white Americans, I'm also talking about um, America, people of color here in the United States, I think, continue to have the image that the typical American is white um, or black. Um, and that's because um, the population of white Americans is still the minority, and we all know that African Americans have been here since the time of uh, slavery. And so um, when people think of Asians um, or they see an Asian state, they have, when Americans do, uh, they have this assumption that, oh, these people must be immigrants. They must have come recently from um, countries in Asia. And um, in some ways, that is empirically accurate because two-thirds of the Asian population here in the United States is actually uh, first-generation immigrants. Um, which means only one-third are um, are U.S.-born Asian Americans who have American citizenship. So um, uh, if you look at a population like Japanese Americans, like I said, most of them are third and fourth generation, and they're completely Americanized. They don't speak Japanese. They don't have much of a connection to Japan. Um, and they think and act and talk like Americans. Uh, culturally, they're very, uh, uh, they're completely Americanized, but because they look Asian, they look Japanese. Um, when they meet people for the first time, they, these people assume, oh, you must, um, you're, they're asked, where are you from? Um, what's your nationality? Why do you speak English so well? You know, these types of uh, microaggressions, which are based on the assumption that because you look Asian, you must not be American, that you are um, uh, a foreigner. and um, it's, uh, it's a um, type of treatment that makes um, Asian-Americans, Japanese-Americans in particular because they've been here for so long, but I think that's is shared among other Asian-Americans um, uh, making them feel that um, despite being here for being born and raised here in the U.S. and being here for a number of generations in some cases, they are not still not seen as Americans, um, again, despite the fact that they're culturally assimilated and, and Americanized. So they um, constantly have to kind of assert their American <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S., you know, something that like a white American or an African-American would never have to um uh, I deal with. Um, and some of the Japanese Americans I interviewed uh, refuse to answer that question when people ask them where are they from because they find it kind of insulting, you know, mm-hmm. and marginalizing. So they say, I'm from Phoenix. And um, <laughs> then, of course, the person says, no, 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 where are you originally from or already from? And then they say, I was born in Chicago. And then my, my parents were born in Los Angeles. You know, they just... Um, they, they don't want to be marginalized by outsiders, they want, they want to demonstrate to other Americans that look, I'm just as American as you are. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, this kind of gets back to our uh, conversation about assimilation earlier in this episode. Um, we were talking yes. about the historical efforts where um, government yes. felt uncomfortable about sending these Japanese populations to California, so they were scattered across America. And what other efforts were taken to encourage the assimilation?
3: Well I don't um I, I think the fact that the government encouraged them to scatter itself is facilitates assimilation because you know if you um live in a, an ethnic enclave with um a lot of uh, co-ethnics like the Japanese did before World War two, then there's gonna unnaturally uh, be more retention of the culture and the language and so on. I mean you find this among Mexican and mexican Americans communities um, that, that they've kind of segregated in, in immigrant communities in Los Angeles, for instance. Um, so the fact that the American government encouraged Japanese Americans to scatter around the country during World War II meant that their communities um, became um, dispersed among white American communities. And so that itself, um, I think, was a another factor that um, accelerated their assimilation here in the United mm-hmm. States. And besides that I would not say the government put any other specific pressures on Japanese Americans to assimilate and become more Americanized. I think it was more an effort among the Japanese Americans to do so because they realized that their Japanese heritage was unwanted cultural baggage and that it would lead to discrimination and prejudice after World War II.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, uh, in your books, you've identified these ways in which uh, various generations of Japanese Americans respond to these pressures, whether for and against, and can you give some examples of a few ways?
3: So it's kind of ironic. <clears throat> the, um, so there, um, if you look at um, uh, current generations of Japanese Americans. There's the, uh, like I mentioned before, the post-war shinnysei, the uh, more um, the um, younger, a uh, more recent second generation, the post-war second generation people like myself. And these shinnysei actually grow up pretty by. They're quite different from other Japanese Americans because um, we grew up in a very, you know. Um, Bicultural, transnational kind of um, lifestyle where our parents um, sent us to Japanese Saturday schools, and we took Japanese classes with students from Japan on Saturdays. And our parents took us back to Japan often because they were, you know, high-skilled professionals and students. And so we grew up pretty connected to the Japanese language and culture. So. When the Shin Nisei, the post-war second generation, get asked where are you from, they're not as bothered by it because, you know, after all, they're only second generation and they still have close linguistic and cultural ties to Japan. But by the time you get to the third and fourth generation, like I mentioned before, they're pretty annoyed um, by the fact that despite the the fact that they've been in the United States for generations, they continue to be seen as some kind of foreigner and not completely American. Um, now, the way they read the third and fourth generation Japanese Americans react, I mean, it's kind of a um, um, kind of a dual type of reaction. On, on one hand, they um, are bothered by the fact that they continue to be seen as um, foreigners, and so they want to assert their Americanness and um, demonstrate that they're um, culturally Americanized. But on the other hand, um this has, um, especially among the fourth generation, led to some regret about the loss of their Japanese cultural heritage and language um, and this is also due to the fact that um, in this multicultural age like being ethnic you know, and having ties to to your ethnic origins and speaking your native language, kind of cool, and <laughs> um, and also images of Japan. I mean, there are lots of Americans who are fascinated by Japan and Japanese culture, and manga, and anime, and ninjas, and samurai, and so on. And um, and so some of these fourth generation Japanese Americans, I mean, um, they feel so they 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 say they feel so whitewashed that um, they've completely Americanized and lost um, their. Japanese ancestral culture and um, especially because Americans continue to racialize them as Japanese and wonder why can't you speak Japanese or why don't you know about Japan you know so they've um, reacted to this kind of um, racialization as foreigners um, by actually trying to recover their lost Japanese ethnic heritage and um, this was one of the most fascinating things that I found in my research and so they decide to start starting the Japanese language, and um, especially during college, uh, go to Japan on um, student exchange programs and start getting uh, um, fascinated with Japanese popular culture. And, um, and so the fourth generation, after generations of Americanization and assimilation, has actually kind of um, tried to return and recover their lost uh, Japanese ancestral heritage, which is very interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree um, with the irony. It feels almost as if the Asian-American experience kind of exists on a bell curve as soon as we are, yes. as as white as possible, we are then most compelled to connect to our Asian, or yes. lost um, Asian heritage. And so what are some ways that the younger generations are doing so?
3: Well, so like I mentioned, um, these are mainly, so the fourth generation are still quite young. And um, they're mainly they're millennial generation college uh, students, and so um, they the, the what's interesting about the way they try to reconnect and recover their Japanese ancestral heritage is that they don't go to Japanese American communities to do that here in the U.S. because they know Japanese Americans have lost their heritage, and yeah, I mean. Japanese Americans do practice some Japanese cultural activities if you go to some of these community events, but it's not seen as the authentic Japanese culture, which is understood to come from the ancestral homeland of Japan. So most of these fourth-generation Japanese American youth try to reconnect with their heritage by going directly to to the source, which is Japan. And so, like I said, that includes taking Japanese language classes and cottage from instructors from Japan, um, going to Japan um, uh, as cottage exchange students to explore their heritage in Japan, and uh, and then getting in touch with Japanese popular culture, which is of course from Japan, not from the the United States. And so. and I should also mention that the, the, it was very, uh, when you said that there's kind of this bell curve to the trajectory of Asian Americans, where um, you know initially they're not assimilated, and as they become Americanized, and then later on there's this effort to recover heritage. You, uh, this was actually um, found among white Americans as well. Hmm. White Americans of the third and fourth generation who are like Italian Americans who end up feeling they lost their ethnicity and they want to. You know, explore their Italianness and go back to Italy and things like that. So it's something that's happened to um, to American ethnics before.
2: That's really interesting, and so it's happening to all of us, kind of on the same timeline.
3: It happens across the generations. I think in general, the second generation is still trying to get ahead and assimilate and um, trying to um, make it an American society and realize the American dream. And by the time you get to the third third, and fourth generation, they have lost their heritage, and they also feel um, secure enough here in the United States, especially socioeconomically and educationally, That, um, and especially in this multicultural era, that kind of reasserting their, your ethnic heritage is no longer going to lead to significant ethnic stigma or anything. So um, I definitely think um, it, it happens across the generations in that manner.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that really interesting and had not considered that at all because um, as we were yeah. talking earlier, uh, even though a Japanese-American might be here for five, four or five generations, it's still, yeah. um, they seem the furthest from being considered American. And so it's yeah. it's kind of comforting to know that other people are experiencing the same things.
3: Yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And so lastly, I just wanted to ask, why did you choose San Diego and Phoenix as your kind of case study cities for your books?
3: Well, I mean, I I wish I could say there was some logical research um, purpose to all this, but I basically chose these communities because those were the two that I was living in. (laughs) So because I was a faculty member at UC San Diego, there is um of course, a large um, uh, in Southern california in general large um, asian american communities including japanese american communities um, and so I had the opportunity to study a japanese american community which i like I said is still third and fourth, uh, mainly third and fourth generation, but continues to remain quite cohesive and with organizations and cultural activities and gatherings and meetings and so on. And then when I moved to uh, here to Phoenix to start my job at Arizona State University, um, I was able to encounter a very different Japanese-American community here, which is um, actually much smaller than the ones in Southern California. And um, some of the Japanese-Americans um, who live here in Phoenix actually were interned in um um concentration camps during world war ii here in in arizona i mean there have been some prominent um there were some prominent internment camps uh here in um here river and poston and so on and so um they are a a product of the japanese americans who just decide to stay here after Mm -hmm. (laughs) they were interned in arizona and so um, this was not by design, but I, because of where I lived, I was able to study two quite different Japanese-American communities. So it diversified my research sample.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting, especially given that California was initially seen as kind of hostile and the non-ideal yeah. place for Japanese-Americans to return to. What since has allowed it to become a, a welcoming place?
3: Well, I think... Um, Um, In general, um, American, like I said before, um, American attitudes toward Japan increased and improved dramatically since World War II. I mean, of course, Japan ended up becoming one of the most uh, uh, longest and staunchest allies of the United States in uh, East Asia. And um, over time, prejudice toward um, Japanese Americans subsided as we grew more distant from World War II, Japan modernized and became an advanced industrialized country, and um, there there was a period where there were trade tensions between Japan and the U.S., uh, like there is between the U.S. and China right now, but that has also subsided, Um, and um, just the increase in Asian immigration, I mean, when the Japanese-American, I mean, before World War II, the Uh, the Japanese and Chinese were the only significant Asian American communities in the U.S., and they were very small. But since World War II, you've had a huge increase in Asian immigration, not just from East Asia, but, but from Southeast Asia and South Asia as well. And so... I think um, Americans have gotten more used to, um, to uh, Asian immigrants and, and Asian Americans. And I think that has increased uh, racial tolerance, um, despite the, the fact that they continue to not be seen as American. I do think um, racial tolerance toward Asian Americans has improved dramatically since the, the, the time when you know, um, Japanese Americans were thrown into concentration camps because they were uh, Japanese descent.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's a really optimistic way of looking at it, but it's hard not to see the analogy between the modern-day migrant detention centers from the incarceration of the Japanese-Americans now.
3: Yes. Uh, Oh, you mean like um, Muslim-Americans? Yeah. Or um, um, the uh, immigrants from Central America who are uh, now being uh, detained in... Mm -hmm. um, Um, in uh, ICE, Immigration, and Customs Enforcement detention centers. Um, I mean, so um, the the strongest analogy with uh, Japanese-American internment during World War II is the uh, detention. A lot of Americans don't know this. After 9-11, the United States government um, detained 2,700 Um, Muslim and Muslim Americans here in the United States in an effort to try to catch terrorists. And some of these uh, Muslim immigrants and Muslim Americans were put in these detention centers for months. And um, after this entire dragnet effort, they actually caught no terrorists. And so this was a complete violation of um, Muslim American uh, civil liberties and um, and so, when this was happening, the- Je- some of the leaders of the japanese American community got very upset because they realized, "Oh my God, this is happening again, you know, um what happened, what the u s government did to us a uh, generation ago they're still now doing to the current generation of you know um whichever immigrant group happens to be the antagonist of the United States gets thrown into, or the enemy of the United States gets thrown into um uh, detention centers, and so the Japanese Americans were the, the, the ones who protested the most uh, loudly against this um, internment of uh, Muslim Americans by basically saying, has the U.S. government not learned anything um, from its past history, that you can't just throw an entire nationality into jail mm-hmm. just because their ancestral homeland happens to be at war with the United States, whether it was World War II or the war uh, against terrorism.
2: Mm-hmm. What a great way to end our episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, Takayuki.
3: Yeah, thank you very much, Coral. I enjoyed your conversation.
2: Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.